0: We're in Matthew chapter 6 today as we discuss this issue of the stewardship of life. Matthew chapter 6, our Lord says this, verses 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for the goodness of knowing you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would take the scripture and make application to our lives. Open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing this stewardship emphasis, and I was reading this week about a man who has a Christian background and he says that, that God is too big to be defined by a word. The God is so everything that you can't define him. We reject that. We believe that God has revealed himself in scripture. He is eternally God. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how God defines himself. We believe that God's Self-definition is in Scripture, and that the message of Scripture is plain and clear regarding the person and the work of Christ. We furthermore believe that the only way to be made right with a God who is eternally there is through the work of Christ on the cross for our sins. That's why we have a missions conference in two weeks. That's why we take the gospel out, because we believe God is, and He has spoken, and there is an eternity that awaits us. And because of that, and because we're made in His image, and because we're called into a fellowship with Him, we are significant people, and we're doing this emphasis, stewardship of life. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount today. It's a sermon preached by Christ, and, and the Sermon on the Mount, to me as I read it, is an appeal to joy and purpose. He starts off the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And the word for blessed means happy, purposeful, beneficial. So when you understand the calling of the living God in your life, it is a beneficial, purposeful calling. Then he goes on, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are a preserving element. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a, a candle and put it under a basket or bowl. They, they take the candle and they put it on a lampstand to give light to the whole house. And then in this appeal to ongoing significance and desire, he talks about the fatherly goodness of the Lord. We know from Scripture that When we receive the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, or Dear Father. We see the beauty and the grace and the goodness of God through the work of the cross of Christ. We see it in creation, but it's made fully splendid before our eyes by the work of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit teaches us. But listen listen to some of these verses. Matthew 5. 44 says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do that. And stop, tax collectors were not affirmed in the day of the Lord. Now, we love the IRS in our day and age, but in their day, they did not like tax collectors. And he says this, chapter 6, verse For regarding giving to those who are needy, he says, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When it comes to prayer, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, Do not babble on with endless phraseology. Do not do like that, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says, verse 14, for if you give others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. And when you fast, don't let people know you're fasting. Do it in secret so that your Father who is in secret, who sees what you do will reward you. So so it's, it's just this appeal to the goodness and the fatherly mercy of the living God. And on the basis of that, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I was reading Psalm 34, thinking about it. And I just thought Psalm 34, this psalm of praise by David, is, really encapsulates so much of, of our walk with the Lord. It says this, for example, verse 4, I saw the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Isn't that a great statement? When you look to the Lord and you come to him on the basis of his mercy, you're never covered with shame. And he says, I cried out to the Lord, and He heard me, and He saved me from my troubles. And he says this, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Oh, oh, taste and see. It's an appeal to desire. It's not, you know, consider the postulates of the Scripture. Consider the unending truth of God and act on it. That's part of it. But he says, taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste the goodness of the Lord. Taste it. Taste. Are you tasting the goodness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are you tasting it? And he says, on the basis of that, fear the Lord, you His saints, reverence him, walk with a sense of calling before him, live with a sense of passion and rightness. And so I just think to myself, self, beholding the beauty and the grandeur of God is always the starting point, always. Beholding the fact that God is and he's glorious and he is good is always the starting point. That's that's where we begin. And so the basis of that, Christ holds up two worldviews and these two worldviews should collide. There's the materialistic worldview that says life is mine to own and spend and expend. And then there's a worldview that says, you know, I'm a steward. Everything I have is a gift of God. And as a good steward, I'm going to be called to give an account for the way I've lived my life. And as a good steward or as a steward, I, I am responsible to the one who has gifted me. There's a wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount called "The Serm- Sermons on the Sermon on the Mount" by Martin Lloyd Jones. And there's a quote in the bulletin, and, and Lloyd Jones says this: it "says I've, I've, I've said for years now. Maybe it's after I read this thirty years ago, but that, that the older you get, the more you deal with cynicism. You just become cynical, and that's what Lloyd Jones says. The doctor it says there's a subtle change that tends to take place in men's lives as they succeed and prosper." It does not happen to those who are truly spiritual, but if they are not, it invariably happens. Why is it that idealism is generally associated with youth and not with middle age and old age? Why do men tend to become cynical as they get older? Why does the noble outlook upon life tend to go? It is because we all become victims of treasures on earth only and if you watch you can see it in the lives of men it is very subtle but it happens and then he says this we are all involved in this we are all in the grip of this awful power of worldliness which really will master us unless we are aware of it We're all involved in this, and it will master us. There's a well-known parable told by Christ regarding this issue of a materialistic worldview. It's in Luke chapter 12. It's about a man. Jesus tells this story about a man who had a bumper crop, and he brought all the crops in, and he says, you know, I can't get all the crops into my barns. What will I do? I will build bigger barns. And he says, Christ says, and, and this man will say, as he tears down his barns and builds bigger barns, he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then the punchline. Christ says, "So this, so it is about the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, people talk about how horrible bigger barns are. That's not the point of the parable. There's nothing wrong with bigger barns. There's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with having things. The issue, the point of that parable is this this man lived with no reference toward the God who is, he looked only to himself only to his desires, only to his pleasure. He lived this worldview that says, I will lay up for myself treasures on earth to the exclusion of thinking about the eternity of God. This materialistic worldview. That's what he's condemning. So the story goes that, that a man who held this worldview was dying. And he called three associates or acquaintances into his His hospital room, he says, I know I'm dying, and I know I've been told I can't take it with me, but I am going to take it with me. He said to his priest and his physician and his attorney, he said, there are three duffel bags over there. I want you guys to take one each. Inside those duffel bags is $500,000. And when I die, which will be very soon, you're going to be be some of my pallbearers. I want you to take that with you to the gravesite. And when they lower my casket into the ground, right before they throw on the dirt, I want you to walk up and I want you to drop your duffel bag on top of my casket because I'm going to take it with me. And so they said, "Well, Well, okay. He died 10 days later, he was buried two days after that. So they, pallbearers, they. And they went and got their duffel bags, and as they began to lower it, they dropped the duffel bag on top of the casket. And these three men got into a stretched limousine, and they were driving away. And the priest said, I, 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 I can't stand it. I, I, I've got to tell you guys, I, in that $500,000 duffel bag, I took out $75,000 because the church needs a new roof, a new air conditioning, and we have no money. So I put in newspaper to make it look as it was a half million, but it was only 425000 and then the doctor looked up and said, well, I, I got to be honest, too. I took out 150 grand because uh, I need to start a new clinic. And this was able to defray the cost. And I put newspaper in to make it look like 500000 The attorney said, I am totally disgusted with you guys. I can't believe you did that. I took out the money. I, I put in newspaper. But I wrote a personal check for $500,000. And I <laughs> dropped it in the thing. Now, you can switch that around. If you're turning up, forgive me if I'm... But the issue is this guy said, I'm going to take it with me. You can't take it with you. See, the materialistic worldview means that we slowly die. There's a little book. It's a good little book called Why I Am Not an Atheist. There's a chapter written by a psychiatrist named Martinez, and this is what he says. He says, the death of God ends up generating a profound social malaise or disorientation that we can rightly compare to the death of man. And what he says is when God dies in your understanding, you die. You die slowly. There's a man named Augustine who lived in the 5th century, basically, and he wrote a book called The City of God, about 420. And Augustine said that, that, that man without God is incurably curved in on himself. And Augustine says we're we're meant to walk with dignity and to reflect the glory of God, but if we don't realize that we reflect the glory of God and that we we glory in God and we live before him, we become self-concerned and self-consumed. And he says slowly, scoliosis of the spirit takes us and makes us look inward, he says, and we die. And so he says this in the book, he says, when therefore man lives according to himself only, that is according to man and not according to God, assuredly he lives according to a lie. It's a lie. Not that man himself is a lie, for God is his author and his creator, who is certainly not the author and creator of a lie. But because man was made to walk upright that he might live according to God's standards, and to God himself according to God himself, he turns inward. It says, all of sin is a lie. The source of man's happiness lies only in God, whom he abandons when he sins. There's purpose. There's power. There's strength found in walking in the way of Christ. So you see, really, the battle cry of freedom, the battle cry of freedom is the larger catechism, question number one, where you say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the battle cry of freedom. The battle cry of freedom is to say what Jesus says in John chapter 8. If, if you have my word and you keep it, then you are my, my disciple indeed. and You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The battle cry of freedom is in Psalm 34 that says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the battle cry of freedom. Are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Is it marking the way you live? Fr- Friday, I don't know if you were out Friday night. I was on the road and I was driving into the sun, and the sunset, Friday night, was absolutely breathtaking. If you saw, it was just glorious. I mean, it was multicolored, it was incredible. And I just started singing hymns of praise to God. And I just said, "The Earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof." praising God for his handiwork. See, that's the battle cry of freedom as compared to somebody that's driving along saying, isn't it amazing, isn't it unbelievable that the impersonal plus time plus chance and a few random molecules came together and somehow all of these shades of glory and beauty and grandeur came out? I cannot believe this is all an accidental get-together, but it is. There's no freedom in that. There's no purpose in that. There's no sense of oughtness to that. We live, we live before the God who is and who has spoken and who's gloriously good. The battle cry of freedom. This story. The man on the, on the left is named Rajat Gupta. Rajat Gupta met the man on the right whose name is Rajar Thothan both Indian Americans. The man on the right is a multi-billionaire. The man on the left came to the U.S. as a student. He was at the top of his class at a college in Bombay, India. He was accepted into the Harvard Business School, and he came here literally with two white shirts and two pairs of slacks. He had no money. He would wear his shirt, wash it, dry it, iron it. Wear the other one, wash it, dry it, iron it. He lived As a very poor student. In fact, he sent money back to his home when he was a young man, and in three years, his brother and sister were able to buy his mama a house in economically depressed India. But he became a modern day success story. He sat on several boards, he was a constant lecturer at Harvard Business School, but he met this man on the right, a billionaire. The man on the right, had several research firms all over America where he hired several people to do research on stock dividends and stock movements, and he would supposedly make uh, savvy investments that made him a multi-billionaire, but we found out years later that he really was using a vast majority of money to buy insider information from key members who sat on significant boards all over the country. So he really made his money unethically. So we met this man. They became friends. This is what The Economist says. Um, Mr. Gupta became one of the most respected Indian businessmen in the world. Barack Obama invited him to the White House. Prime Minister Singh, the Indian leader, answered his phone calls. He retired a few years ago with a golden reputation and more money than anyone could reasonably spend an estimated $100 million. He had everything, but it was not enough. And so he socialized with billionaires and wanted to become one of them. And so this man who was a billionaire bought his services. He was on the board of a key bank, and he was discovered. And now this man who had an impeccable reputation is facing several years in prison because of financial misdealings. And I read that and I thought, you know, there, there, is, a, there is a word that people who have a materialistic worldview basically do not have in their vocabulary. And that word is enough. We have $100 million, but I want to be a billionaire. I want to get inside that circle. I, I wanted to have this acclaim. I want to lay it for myself, treasures on earth. Or moth and rust, corrupt. Or thieves breaking in steel. steal. See, we we know the truth. If you're a Christ follower, you know the truth. And the truth is, there's a biblical worldview where Christ has laid for Himself treasures in heaven. And so, for example, in, in 1 Timothy, one of the key passages on this issue, uh, P- Paul says, Chapter six, verse seventeen. He says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in the living God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Just stop. Isn't that wonderful? God provides us everything for our enjoyment. He is a good and glorious God. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. As they do that, he says, Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, the text doesn't answer this question. Does that mean only eternity or here and eternity? I believe it's here and eternity. If you want to take hold of life with purpose and dignity and joy, you live for the kingdom of God. You live as a called out steward. And he says, command those. So so listen, the Apostle Paul says, he's commanding us as as the apostle of the resurrected Christ. Command those who are rich in this present world. Don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. And and don't don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in the living God who provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He commands us to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. That's, that's who we're called to be. We're called to leave a legacy of grace and goodness. We're called to live it out before God. I was reading this past week a nationwide newspaper, and it talks about a new phenomenon called a legacy video. I'm going to call it a legacy letter. But a legacy video talks about a woman who had her fourth child in her early 40s or late 30s, and they have discovered inoperable cancer when she had the baby, and Her her concern as she talked to her older children and her husband is, this "This baby will never know me, and she did die. But before she died, this lady whose name is Mrs. Wallace recorded a 17-minute video for her son, her two-year-old son at that time, talking about her life, her idea of happiness, and how she wanted to be remembered. Then the paper goes on and says, it is the step... More terminally ill patients are taking these days either on their own or with the help of nonprofit groups specialized in what are called legacy videos. One is called Just So You Know. The group that recorded Mrs. Wallace's footage offers its services free to patients at hospital and cancer patient conferences. Another group called Through My Eyes records video free in patients' homes. So they did this this legacy video, and I thought, you know, that's an incredible exercise for us to walk through. So I'm going to ask you guys to do this. I'm going to do it. Write a legacy letter. If you're 15 or 95, a legacy letter. You may want to review it with a friend. Tell your child or your spouse where it is, seal it, and do it every year. This is what I want to be remembered for. This is how I want you to remember the way I spent my life. You may want to say these are my regrets. forgive me. I'll say, forgive me for doing this. But I want to be remembered as as I want to be remembered as a man who lived for something bigger than himself. I want to be remembered as a man who took God's word seriously and was serious about the grandeur of Christ. I want to love people. I want to care for those who cannot protect themselves. I want to be an individual who lives for eternity. Think through it. You see, that's a worldview. Think about Moses. Moses says this in Hebrews 11 about Moses. How was able, Moses able to be the man God called him to be? And This is what it says. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Okay, He's looking at something better than himself, bigger than himself, the kingdom. Now, my time is fleeting. I've got three application statements to just hang in there. I'm going I'm to throw it out. Point number three that I can't cover is it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus says with simplicity, Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Unarguable. So number one is this. In the area of the application of treasures, stewardship, I believe that tithing is biblical. Now, there's a statement in the bulletin from a guy named Randy Alcorn. Read it. Think about it. We don't have time to walk through it. It's a good statement. I believe God calls us to be givers. 10% he calls the training wheels for Christian giving training wheels and yet we know that the vast majority of evangelicals give less than 2% it's just amazing so so i believe in the tithe before or after taxes you walk before god before that the tithe i think is good to bring it into the church. I can make a biblical case for it to give to the local church. Malachi 3 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse referred to the community of faith. In Acts chapter 5, they, they brought their, their, their gifts and they laid them at the apostles' feet. The God, God called out men who led the church. See, one reason I believe that is, is, because, is because you get five appeals a week. If you give to one person, you get five appeals. It's amazing. Um, and, and and really, if you sometimes you don't have the the, the time to investigate what they're being asked to give to, and sometimes I don't want to be callous here, but the person with the best video wins your your affection. In this church, we have a missions committee that goes through the doctrinal statement who goes through what they're doing on the mission field, who says, is it gospel-oriented? Are they reaching people for Christ? Is it centered on, on, on strong theology? They go through a, a battery of tests, and then we give. When we give the world Christmas offering, Lottie Moon, this is a, a wonderful thought. 97% or so more of, of every dollar we give to Lottie Moon goes to the mission field. There's, there's very little administrative oversight because they've been doing this for so long, they just get it out. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I I bring it here and I say, okay, elders, finance people, missions committee, you're on the the hook. You're on the hook. You use it well. You use it well. I believe that. Okay, secondly, some of us who who have prospered financially need to pray about what we call a graduated tithe. Like I said, tithing, training wheels. But, but I think you know, if we, you, you, what you do is you, you cap your lifestyle and you give so that others can be blessed. You give to mercy concerns. You give to whatever. But you cap your lifestyle. And let me show you how this works. I talked to many young people. They're, they're making, through the years, 35 grand, let's say. They're making 35 grand. And, and, and yet, they live at a 45 grand lifestyle. Now, I'm not a great economist, but there's a rule of thumb that you need to use, and that is you spend less than you make. You don't know what I mean? It just doesn't work if you don't do then I've Then walked with people through the years, and they'll come to see me, and they'll say, in some cases, man, we're in bad shape financially. They're making 250, 350 grand a year, but they're living at a $450,000 lifestyle. You never catch up. And you never can be a blessing to other people. So what I'm saying is, you need to pray about what you give as you are prospered. When God prospers you, be a blessing to other people. Now I can't tell you how much that is. And if somebody else says they have a final word from God on that, run. That's between you and the Lord and godly counsel. But God has called us to be a blessing to other people. And if you there's a gift for giving. I'm well. Romans 12, 8 says there is a gift of giving. There's a the gift of knowledge. There's a the gift of teaching. There's a the gift of giving. Some people have the ability to really give. And I think usually we have a, a ability to really give. God prospers you financially. So thanks be to God. If you have the gift of giving, man, everybody gives. But there's some people have that, 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 that they, they go for it. So, so I, I just, be a blessing. be a blessing. I'm just thinking about people that have blessed my life. This weekend we have our campus outreach group has taking 206 people skiing on a ski retreat from from our campus outreach work here. 130 from the Citadel or so. 70 or 80 freshmen who want to get out of jail free for a weekend. You know? And and I just stepped back and thought, thanks be to God that when I was a freshman at the Citadel 41 years ago, next month, I heard the gospel. Somebody was there to tell me the gospel. They spent their life sharing the gospel. And God saved me. That's good. So you're saved to be a blessing. Thirdly, there, there's, there's a great joy there's a great joy in knowing your use of God. So I, I think about these young people. That's where God, I think that if, if God really gets hold of a, of a 19 year old, they've got 60 or 70 years to really be used of God. God wants to use you where you are. Some of us are in the home stretch. God wants to use you. You're called of God to be a steward of His grace. One of the most Enlightening Little Stories is a Christmas carol by Charles Dickens, written when Dickens was 31 years old. To study his life, he, had, he and his wife had 10 children. He left his wife, took up with a young actress the last few years of his life, and died suddenly at age 58. So he didn't end well. But he wrote this when he was 31, kind of where he was thinking about making a difference. But, you know, it's a story about a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge who was a true miser who, who was visited on Christmas Eve by three different spirits regarding the Christmas past, present, future. and He woke up and realized it was a, a dream and with great joy he went out and he was different. This is what Dickens writes. He, he went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and he patted children on the head and he questioned beggars and he looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. And later it says this story, says some people laughed to see the alteration in old Ebenezer Scrooge, but he let them laugh. And little heeded them because his own heart laughed and he was quite Enough. It was quite enough for him, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, and if any man alive possessed the knowledge, it was Ebenezer Scrooge. That's the way we should live, stewards, with joy, with abandon, with laughter. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt thieves break in and still. Let me tell you, we're going to die one day. And let me promise you something. On your deathbed, you will not say, I wish I had bought a 65-foot boat instead of a 30-foot boat. I promise you. I promise you. We will say, thanks be to God, who by his grace has saved me. Thanks be to God that I believe I'm going to heal here. Well done, good and faithful servant, in the next minute. That's the way I want to go. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you that we that the cry of um, the battle cry of freedom is I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Thank you that the battle cry of freedom is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Thank you that the battle cry of freedom is you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I ask that by your grace and for your glory, you would work in us to live as people who understand the gravity and the blessing and the joy and the laughter that is ours in Christ. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.